Good evening. I'm Marcus Leader, and I would like to invite you on a journey of discovery as I pull back the veil and give you a glimpse of the multiverse through the eyes of a Toltec shaman. So sit back, relax, turn up the volume, and turn down the lights. You're now listening to The Shaman's Brew.
In tonight's show, I'm going to talk to you about the possibility of real vampires. Are there such things as real vampires? I'm not speaking of the people that belong to the vampire subculture who choose to follow the role-playing lifestyle and partake in blood drinking, or those who believe they are psychic energy vampires draining the life force from their victims or willing donors. While I do believe that there are humans who can learn to take energy from other people, I also am of the opinion that most of these people have not spent the time to master this skill and simply go through the motions immersing themselves in a separate reality content to live a more interesting and exciting lifestyle than would normally be available to them in the mundane reality of today's society. When I speak of real vampires, I am referring to those creatures who dwell within the convolutions of reality formed in the borderlands where science and myth collide and are sustained by the uncertainty of logic wrapped in a cocoon of primal fear. These would be the creatures that only mimic human qualities in order to sustain their parasitic essence through the absorption of human life force. Be it through the energy contained in human blood or from the life force energy that oozes from every fiber of our luminous energy bodies, these real vampires survive as a result of a highly specialized parasitic process that started long before humans walked the earth and has evolved to a state of sophistication that even Darwin couldn't have imagined. Do they exist and walk undetected among us? Could it be possible that their intellect is so superior to ours that we play right into their hands not even realizing that we sustain them perhaps while we sleep or in moments of great induced fear, causing our own energy bodies to bleed energy that can easily be lapped up by these hungry, sophisticated creatures. Is there something to all the ancient stories of vampire lore that exist in every country on the planet? Or is this just the stuff of fiction writers' imaginations? The truth behind all these questions has yet to be substantiated, and I can not offer any scientific data to prove or disprove the existence of real vampires. What I can offer is my own first-hand experiences with two possible real vampires that manifested as a result of my own eight-year shamanic apprenticeship with a world-renowned anthropologist and Toltec shaman. In both of these separate encounters, I was in normal waking consciousness and was not under the influence of any type of psychotropic substance, as my mentor was opposed to using any kind of mind-altering substance during my entire apprenticeship. The first of these encounters with a possible real vampire occurred on an October evening during the early 1990s. My teacher would make regular trips to the city where I lived, where a portion of my training took place. And during these visits, 
my first exercise would be a sort of game where I would not only sense when he was in town, but I had to find him using my Toltec seeing or scrying techniques that uh, he had taught me years before in the Sonoran deserts of Mexico. It was kind of like having a uh, GPS locator powered by clairvoyance instead of satellites. This night was no exception as I got my car around 11 p.m. not having a clue where I was going. This game, as my teacher referred to it, sometimes took me as long as two hours to win by locating him. This night I found him in just under an hour at a very peculiar location. Normally I would find him along the beach, uh, somewhere on the lake shore, or in a parking lot, even walking downtown. But this time, I found his car sitting in the driveway of a house in a very dark and exclusive neighborhood at Sanders Beach. At first, I was uncertain if it really was his car, and I was not crazy about the idea of walking up to someone's house at almost midnight in fear I might be shot as an intruder. Then I saw him peek out the living room window, so I pulled into the driveway and turned off my lights. It was unusually dark, even for a moonless sky, and I had this feeling in the pit of my stomach that tonight was going to be very different from all my other lessons, as every fiber of my being told me to start the car up and get out of there. However, I trusted my teacher with my life on more than one occasion, and I had no reason to doubt that he would not place me in harm's way. So I stepped out of the car and walked to the front door, which slowly and silently swung open for me as I reached the doormat. It was very dark inside the house, and I stood there straining my eyes, trying to see Carlos, my teacher, when a voice came from behind me saying, Marcos, are you going to go in or do I have to boot you in the ass? He startled me so much that I actually jumped through the doorway while my teacher tried to suppress his laughter. As he closed the door behind me, he said, Mi casa su casa, Marcos, meaning my house is yours. And I asked him, why did you buy a house here? He replied by ignoring my question and saying that he has someone he would like me to meet. And when I asked him who it was, he simply and nonchalantly replied, Your adversary. Suddenly, I felt sick to my stomach and asked him where the bathroom was. And he laughed and said, Do not worry, Marcos. She will not bite you tonight. If that statement was meant to calm me, it failed miserably. He led me into what I believed was the living room, which was lit only by the light being given off by a small burning log in the fireplace. This created a very eerie atmosphere of flickering orange light and dancing shadows that began to pull on my strings of imagination. The room had a Victorian-style sofa in front of the fireplace, with a matching chair in the darker, far corner of the room adjacent to a large window with heavy floor-to-ceiling curtains. 
Carlos then gestured toward the chair in the dark corner of the room and said, Marcos, I would like you to meet Andrea. She has come a long ways just for you. I shielded my eyes from the firelight with my hand and, and stared into the dark corner wondering why I had not seen anyone sitting in the chair moments before, but I could see nothing but an empty chair. Knowing that Carlos loved to play practical jokes on me, I came to the sudden realization that this was one of those jokes and he was trying to scare me. As I turned to confront him, he patted me on the back and said, I'm going to leave you two to get better acquainted, and then turned to leave the room. I said, wait a minute, there is no one in the chair. He chuckled and said, no, there is not. Andrea is a bit shy and she is hiding in the curtains. He then turned and left the room. I immediately turned to face the curtains and my so-called adversary named Andrea just in time to see the curtains ruffle and a female silhouette step from behind them. My heart felt like it was going to beat out of my chest as my eyes caught the first glimpse of a very petite and seductively beautiful woman. She had pale skin and long, stringy, jet-black hair. Her eyes were absolutely captivating in the flickering light, but looked unusually large. She then started walking silently toward me, and in that instant I realized why her eyes looked so large. They were all black, with absolutely no white in them at all. I tried to step backwards to her advance, but found my feet were frozen to the floor. Then I noticed something that scared me more than anything I have ever witnessed. Her advance toward me was far smoother than a walking gait. She was sliding toward me without making a single sound. I tried to call out for Carlos, but it was too late. I felt her cold hand fall firmly upon my chest near my right shoulder, and I swear it felt like my entire being was being sucked into her through her hand. Our faces only inches apart as I stared into the pools of darkness where her eyes should have been, and suddenly the massive waves of fear changed into a much more primal emotion, and all I wanted was to succumb to this incredible sensual creature of the night. I knew that my life force was leaving me, but even that did not shake me from the trap I had fallen into. Just when I thought I would pass out, I felt a blow to my back, and an invisible arm pulled me out of the room. It was Carlos, and he helped me walk outside and told me to get in the car where he sat and talked while I composed myself, and I tried to recover from what I believe was an attack from a vampiric succubus. While I was recovering both physically and emotionally from my confrontation with Andrea, Carlos explained that she was indeed a succubus and was not human, nor had she ever been human. He went on to explain that she was a creature made entirely of energy, capable of moving through dimensional realities, and that our physical world was one of her primary feeding grounds. He continued in saying that her kind had been around long before humans walked the earth and that her parasitic nature had a 
evolved into a most exquisite art of deception and cunning over millions of years of natural adaptation to the many evolutionary shifts of life on our planet. Before humans, her kind would feed on the survival instincts and associated emotions generated by fear and panic of the animals and reptilian uh, kingdom during the many vicious battles of survival between predators and their prey. It seemed that emotional fear created a separation of layers in the energy body of biological entities, and this separation freed the life force, allowing the parasitic succubus to feed. Then along came a more sophisticated creature, humans, who were capable of generating a much higher vibration of life force and therefore more nurturing to creatures like Andrea. Fear also works the same way in humans as it does with other animals, causing the life force energy layers that we have surrounding us at all times to separate, which allows our energy to seep out, making us the main course for an energy vampire or succubus. Then at some point in our own evolution, these energy-feeding parasites found a more efficient way to drain our energies through the primal passions of sexual desire. When a human is sexually aroused, a direct link opens up from the root chakra to the target of their passions and energy flows freely. When humans share this condition with each other, the flow is in two directions, so there is a giving and taking in the exchange. Some women have a stronger pull that allows them to take far more energy than they give. But for the most part, it is an even exchange of both pleasure and energy. However, when a vampiric succubus stimulates these passions in a male, it becomes more of a feeding frenzy for the succubus, and an extremely pleasurable yet potentially deadly experience for the human. While the method of choice seems to be leaning more toward sexual passion, creatures like Andrea still use fear to prime the feeding process, especially with children and females, as suggested by the countless stories of shadow-like creatures that come to our bedsides, filling their victims with unspeakable fear for no obvious reason. The next thing that Carlos said chilled me to my very core. He said that the reason he summoned Andrea and introduced her to my energies was the, so that she would become my lifelong adversary and trainer, so to speak, keeping me energetically fit by honing my protection skills. He said that when she sensed that I was allowing my protective shields to soften, she would attack when I least expected it and in a location that was most advantageous to her. Needless to say, I got very upset for him for doing this and told him that I didn't want any part of this and if this is how he was uh, going to treat me, then I want it out. He laughed and said, One day, Marcos, you will thank me for the gift I have given you tonight. His laughter frustrated me and angered me even more and that made him laugh harder. And he said, Why, Marcos, I think I see smoke coming out of your ears. You are strong enough now. Go home. You will not encounter Andrea again for many months. And by then, 
I know, being the good student that you are, that you will have mastered the protection techniques that I have been teaching you. I went home, but had trouble sleeping for days after this encounter, in fear that Andrea would return. She did not, at least not until almost a year later when I was exploring the basement of an antique store in downtown Coeur d'Alene. I was uh, looking for some old magazines that the owner of the store had in the dark, poorly lit basement. By this time, I had stopped looking out for Andrea, thinking that uh, she most likely found better feeding grounds. I remembered kneeling to the floor in the corner of a large basement while I rummaged through boxes of old magazines, and suddenly I got that feeling of being watched, and I was the only person down there. The hair on the back of my neck stood completely erect, and I spun around only to see a glowing silhouette standing about ten feet behind me. It was Andrea, as seductively beautiful and horrifying as I remembered, and she was standing between me and the exit. I started to panic, and then remembered what Carlos had uh, told me about honing my protective skills, and I immediately went into action using an ancient Toltec method of shielding my energy in an impenetrable cocoon. Then, summoning all my courage, I jumped up and ran like a ten-year-old kid right past her as she reached out for me, unsuccessfully. This was several years ago, and while I have not encountered her physically since that day, I still sense her at many times in my dreams. I believe this was an encounter with a creature that could be construed as a real vampire. Now before I relate to you my second encounter with what I believe to be a living human and real immortal vampire, we're going to take a break and listen to a song to further put us in the mood for a vampire encounter from the soundtrack of The Lost Boys called Cry Little Sister.
tell you about an immortal human Toltec vampire that I encountered while on a field trip with my teacher deep in the Mexican desert. This person is very different from Andrea in that he was a living human from a distant Toltec shamanic lineage who seemingly was immortal from his vampire energy feedings. He was destined to live forever. Imagine the implications of no illness, no disease, no cancers, healing a broken bone in days as opposed to weeks. How much could you learn? How would so much accumulated wisdom affect your life and work? What would great minds such as Nikola Tesla and Albert Einstein have accomplished if they were not taken from us so soon? The possibilities of this are staggering. But is immortality or extended life with no aging a real possibility or just a dream that has haunted humans for millenniums? If you follow the progress of medical research with one eye and the new research pushing the envelope of consciousness with the other, you would come to the conclusion that it is indeed a very real and upcoming possibility. Geneticists are rapidly closing in on the genetic coding that causes our bodies to age and may soon find ways to disable or block that action. At the same time, microbiologists are finding new cures for various viruses and bacterium that could lead to an end or suppression of the diseases that have plagued humans for countless eons. Add this to the groundbreaking research that many doctors are now using in their practice which incorporates the mind control over the body's autonomic mechanisms and one might agree and conclude 
that youthful longevity is indeed a very real possibility on the horizon. If we examine this question from the perspective that lies outside the mainstream of science and medicine, we find that through the eyes of a shaman, immortality and youthful longevity of the human body is not only a possibility, but a reality that has been practiced for countless centuries. Various shamanic healers and adepts have guarded this ancient knowledge from being lost for thousands of years. Individuals from all faiths have called upon the powers of spirit through, throughout history, including the Christ, the Buddha, the Goddess, the Gitche Manitou, and others for their healing powers and knowledge. Faith healers reach within and tap energies that science has yet to discover. Energies that somehow change the structure of vitality of our bodies on a cellular level. Have you ever noticed how some people never seem to age or at least age very slowly? The reason for this is not necessarily genetics, but rather a matter of personal energy and the way it flows through the bodies and back into the environment around us. These people, who seem not to age like the rest of us, have either consciously or subconsciously cleansed the meridians of life force energy pathways and thereby stopped or even turned back the biological clock. Of course, good nutrition helps on the biochemical level as it uh, has been proven that we are what we eat. But the real secret lies in energy and energy manipulation and flow. Yes, my friends, the fountain of youth does not flow with water. It surges with energy. Throughout my apprenticeship with my own mentor, Dr. Carlos Castaneda, I have personally experienced this type of energy manipulation as well as encountering an individual who I believe was an immortal. Carlos is a master of personal energy manipulation and on many occasions demonstrated the principle of aging literally before my eyes and then reversed the process in a matter of seconds. And this was not an illusion of the eye or the mind. It was a manipulation of personal energy through his assemblage point, which I have spoken about in previous shows. He would, on occasion, introduce me to different individuals, calling them colleagues or sometimes just old acquaintances. Often, I would not understand what the purpose of these meetings were for and think nothing of it. However, on one trip I took with him, at an undisclosed uh, location. We camped in the desert overnight waiting for someone to join us. Around what I believed to be one in the morning, someone approached our campfire. Carlos seemed to know he was near long before the man appeared. As he said, Marcus, get ready, we have company. I stared off into the moonlit chaparral in all directions but could not see any signs of movement. After 15 to 20 minutes, an image of a man walking in the moonlight appeared, and we both stood to greet him. Carlos introduced him as Don Miguel, and we exchanged nods and shook hands. As my hand touched his, I felt a surge of energy flowing out of me, as if a large portion of my life force had just left me, and I swear I heard his voice in my ears thanking me for the exchange 
and yet his mouth did not move. Then, just as suddenly as Don Miguel appeared, he bid us farewell and turned and walked off into the moonlight. I watched him not saying a word until he disappeared in the distance. Then I asked Carlos, what the hell was all that about? He chuckled and avoided my question and said I needed to sit down before I fell down and I should eat and then sleep. I knew uh, he was not going to answer me, at least not at that time, so I complied with his suggestions. The next afternoon, when I finally awoke, Carlos handed me a hot dog rolled up in a corn tortilla and said, Eat. We must leave this place before darkness returns. I was very groggy and having difficulty waking up and getting motivated. The events of the previous night seemed clear, but very surreal in my mind. To this day, I have many unanswered questions about that night that still run through my mind. Carlos would never speak of it to me, except to say that it was part of my Nawal training, and that I had been given a special gift by Don Miguel. I have yet to fully realize the nature of that gift, at least on a conscious level. Years later, Carlos spoke of him in a similar incident. In fact, he even wrote about it in one of his many books. He talked of a time when he met a stranger that lived in the mountains with the assistance of Don Juan Mateus, his mentor and shamanic teacher. He had an encounter with this stranger that closely resembled my own encounter. Don Juan told him that this stranger was an immortal, literally an immortal. He was uh, several centuries old and had uh, no way of knowing for sure exactly how old. He went on explaining that the stranger was one of the ancient ones and that he stayed young and healthful throughout the centuries by recharging his energy reserves to keep his personal power in high flux. And he did this through a Nawal's agreement. It seems that he had learned the ability to take life force from other humans, thereby rejuvenating his own for a set number of months or years. The problem is that the need for this life force energy was great and much greater than the average person could safely fulfill if this type of life force vampire attempted to take the average person's energy it would flow so fast and end up putting in the person at risk of serious illness or death as their own life force diminished. The only type of person this ancient one could safely and reliably take energy from is what is known as a Nawal. I am not certain what the population ratio of Nawal to non-Nawal people are, but the main difference is in the configuration of the energy body that each of us has. In most people, the energy body is a bisected energy field dividing the energy into two compartments. And in a wall-type person, the energy fields are trisected or more commonly quadrisected, making four individual compartments, which I am assuming act as a governor keeping the energy flow in check. This compartmentalization of energy in the Nawal's energy body seems to be somewhat of an advantage in energy manipulation and storage. 
This does not mean that a non-Nawal individual is inferior in any way. It just means that some things are easier for the Nawal to master, and it takes more effort for a non-Nawal individual to obtain the same results. Carlos was a trisected Nawal, having three individual energy centers. His teacher, Don Juan, was a quadrisected Nawal, and I am also a quadrisected Nawal, having four energy centers. Getting back to the mortal and the Nawal's agreement, Carlos said that in exchange for the energy, which can be built back up in a matter of days, by the way, the ancient immortal one shared his accumulated wisdom and knowledge on the spiritual or subconscious level. After Carlos shared this story with me, I began to connect the dots to my own experience years before. When I voiced my thoughts to Carlos, he smiled, leaving me to fall back on my speculations. In my mind and heart, I believe I met an immortal, maybe 500 years older, older, but he didn't look a day over 40. In my consciousness and enlightenment research, I am incorporating both my shamanic training and scientific training in finding ways to teach people how to manipulate these energies and use them to be more than you ever dreamed possible. It can be thought of as an amalgamation of mind, body, and spirit, unifying the physical body with the higher spiritual body on an energetic level, using the commonality of the mind as a mediator. The most powerful tools used to accomplish this are faith, belief, intent, and brainwave synchronization and resonance with the surrounding environment. I don't know about all of you out there, but I do not want to live forever, but I do want to make the most out of this physical incarnation and stop or reverse the aging process so that I can experience and learn from the physical world and make it an incredible adventure. Thank you for listening, and I would like to offer a special thanks to Coyote Man for the background music in this segment, and to the Midnight Syndicate for my entrance theme. Until next time, this is Marcus Leader wishing you a safe and exciting passage through all of life's journeys. And now, I present to you the number one paranormal author in the world, Rosemary Ellen Guiley. As I play part two of our interview on vampires and the new release of her second edition, the Encyclopedia of Vampires and Werewolves. You know, as a result of all this literature and, and the movies, do you, do you think that's what's responsible for um, the creation and evolution of uh, today's vampire, the living vampire subculture? Or was that around before that really became popular, just underground? I think a lot of the uh, vampire subculture was uh, influenced heavily by Anne Rice and also role-playing, you know, the um, role-playing games like Masquerade. But probably Anne Rice uh, is the biggest influence on that. Uh, She really glamorized vampires and 
fostered the idea of, of the long clans and families and uh, reinforced the idea of aristocracy and nobility um, much more than fiction before that and, and film even, where most of the Dracula films, uh, Dracula's kind of a loner, you know, he's not really part of a, a big underground network of, of vampires, and Anne Rice really built that up. Uh, and it inspired a lot of people. And um, uh, I think for a time, life imitated art. Uh, and now it's kind of taken a hold on its own. It's, it's uh, self-creating. -cre um, the people who are considering themselves vampires, and a good number of them are, would be called more energy vampires. Because of, you know, there aren't that many people who have a real taste for blood and and um, it has its hazards, health hazards, of course. Mm -hmm. um, and um, they've created their own communities with their own literature, their own mythology, their own searching for their, their roots as, as what they feel their place in the cosmos is, um, what defines them as vampires. And there are mixes of elements from the fictional vampires, from folklore, um, from, I would say, even magical streams of thought, uh, looking to people who would be magical or, or sorcery sorts of adepts, uh, in terms of their ability to harness power and manipulate it for their own purposes. Uh, the guy that you had done the co-interview with on, um, I'm trying Father, to remember. Father Paris. Sebastian? Yeah, the 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 guy. Yeah, that was the the interview. Now he had an interesting uh, perspective on this, and he said that, um, like you said, how they're changing from the uh, the evil, gruesome, ghoulish idea that attacks you in the night and takes your will, mesmerizes you, and then you you relent your neck or whatever into this. Um, non-animal, kinder, gentler sort of vampire where they go to clubs and they absorb the excess energy. And then he actually said something about healing people while he was taking this energy from them. Now, I'm, I'm a little confused about that. How do, you, how do you take, how do you have a symbiotic relationship, A, with, with people that you don't know, um, B, excess energy, um, I know he tried to throw some stuff on there about quantum energy and they that seems to be the pervasive favorite buzzword in the paranormal these days is quantum. Um, how many people had classes in physics, I'm not quite sure, but it's an idea that they're sort of throwing out there with the to describe energy fields. So how is it that they can heal at the same time they're taking from people that don't know that they're donating blood to these people? Is it stealing, or is it just picking something up off the ground that somebody dropped? I, I think we find a lot of different practices among vampires, just uh, as, as we do among people in general. You know, there are the ethical and the non-ethical. And according mm -hmm. to the ethical tenets that are put forward in these vampire communities, uh, who are not homogenous by any means, um, the taking of energy without permission 
especially to the depletion um, of another individual, is unethical. Are there people who do those sorts of things? Well, probably, just they're predatory people on, on all levels of society. Um, and one of the things that, that um, Father Sebastian was addressing was transmutation of energy, that energy could be taken from other people and transmuted. Uh, negative energy could be taken from someone and, and transmuted in, into something more positive. Now, the precise process by which that is done uh, is unclear to me. Uh, there may be some uh, energy healing techniques that individuals could pick up from uh, different systems, uh, you know, um, uh, like, like Reiki or shamanic okay. healing, and they may adapt them to to different purposes. But I'm uh, I'm speculating here. Um, and one of the things that I, I did find interesting about what he was saying about living vampires, and uh, after, by the way, after that radio show, um, a few days later, John Zappos and I went into New York City, and we had uh, quite a nice meeting with Father Sebastian where we were able to um, pursue our conversation in quite some detail. Uh, and uh, I found it especially helpful for my own research that uh, he was making an important distinction between living vampires and psychic vampires. And uh, he has defined psychic vampires as people who are needy. They're needy of energy off other people in order just to uh, feel good and, uh, and survive. And he said living vampires are an another kind of vampire where uh, they they don't have that weakness. Rather, they take energy from people because that's how they they thrive. That's how they um, they make the most of things. Um, and when you think about it, though, Tracy, you know uh, we're all kind of energy vampires in in certain ways because uh, you know we meet people and we uh, we get energy hits off people. Some people make us feel good and, and energized, and other people. Uh, deplete us um, in in ways we get tired being around them. Uh, we take people's ideas and inspirations and and actions, and you know these are all forms of energy that we wind up processing through ourselves uh, for our own uh, our own benefit. And it's that kind of style of vampirism that um, Father Sebastian was was addressing as. Um, that's the kind of living vampire community that that he's part of and that he's addressing his work to. Is it possible that these people, okay, when they, hmm, wow, I would have loved to be there to hear what John Zappas had to say about this. And it was his show, as a matter of fact, that, that this was from uh, Para-X, I believe, was the, the station that it was on. Um, he... When, when Father Sebastian was talking about going to a club, I was interested in, and you're you're talking about bringing it down to like a a, a local level of every every day, you know, dealing with people. There's narcissists, and they get off on psychologically beating somebody else down to be to to build themselves back up, which is a form of uh, psychic vampirism. And there's a lot of people that say psychic and they automatically think of somebody with a crystal ball, but psychic just means psychological, you know, in, in definition, really. So when you're looking at at these people that go out and they, they absorb energy, 
can not these people be feeling adrenaline rushes, which is created from within? Or is there, do they really believe that they're physically unable to create their own energy force so they have to get it from without rather than within? I mean, are, are they actually getting some sort of a rush, the dopamine and, and all that from being around a lot of other people? Or is are they characterizing those natural processes into what they call vampirism. I mean, is there sort of a, was the guy able to, to uh, see the difference between one is not supernatural and one is to him, everything is supernatural. I'm not quite sure how he's, he's identifying natural processes or does he think it's all like that, that they're a particular different type of breed of people that are unable to create their own energy. Well, we're dealing with a, a lot of different definitions, uh, all of which exist in the living vampire community. And uh, yes, for the most part, people who are part of this community see themselves as different from other kinds of people because of their vampiric nature, whatever that is. And there is no homog- uh, homogeneous definition of the living vampire. There is no uniform thing that applies to them all. Uh, There are different types of vampires, different attitudes, just like there are different races of of human beings on the planet. Um, And many of them do describe getting uh, a rush, a high, off taking energy from another person or a large number of people. And I think most individuals can relate to that. You know, we've all felt the excitement of being in, for example, in a big crowd that's excited about something in, a, in some sort of, of pitch of interest. And we all feel the bump off that. So a, a living vampire is someone in many respects who's more aware of that process and is able to make use of it in more conscious ways than perhaps the average person. Now, I've also met and talked to vampires who describe more of a need basis. And um, uh, another prominent vampire in the the living community is Michelle Belanger. She's written about her own story in several of her books. And she describes discovering at an early age that she really needed energy from other people in order to uh, sustain her sense of health and well-being. So I think we have a variety of purposes and needs that go on in the vampire community, and, and any one vampire could be subject to um, to more than one at any given time. Well, the darker uh, side of it, now, now Marcus knows somebody, I'm going to I want you to describe this person because I only have the file that you sent me, so um, okay. that literally talks about, because there's a sanguine vampire, which is the one that everybody goes, ooh, scary and dark. And I had some interviews uh, through an anthropological program with a, a subculture that's local to, to the area that I live in, Southern California. And I had to be taken, uh, there's a whole protocol, I mean, you, you know, special knocks on doors kind of thing, you know, where you don't get to just walk in and and observe these clubs. I had to go through a process of interviews with people and I had to be, you know, established trust. And I'm not going to say anybody's names or where these places are, but um, I had to go to about three different uh, uh, locales 
until finally the third one was, I mean, there was people, that's what they do. There's, and there were the different types, you know, you're, you're right on with that. In my experience that there were energy vampires, there were, uh, I was obviously completely out of place <laughs> when I went in there. <laughs> I don't, I, I think I had black shoes on. That was about it. It was anywhere near close to anything that these people were, you know, their, their, their physical appearance anyway. But there's a, com- they did, I noticed it was, it was a vibe, you know, when you, when you met these people and they knew automatically that I was, I was uh, uh, foreign to their environment. And they did have the sanguine, and they did have particular relationships between uh, uh, established between the the ones that took the blood and the ones that were the blood uh, donors, and and they have special words that they use to describe these roles. And um, I thought it was really interesting because uh, there was a lot of curiosity and people kind of buzzing around lurkers that were staring. You know, they knew why I was there because they had already gotten a big okay that I could go in. But it it was interesting to me the the, the big difference between the sanguine vampires, which are the ones that actually take the blood, versus the ones that are non invasive physically I guess I'm trying to come up with my own terminology here but they don't take the blood they, they just they do it in more ethereal means so about the sanguine vampires that's what everybody wants to know about so I guess that's probably our next where Marcus knows and I'm sure you know a lot of those people Rosemary <laughs> oh, I'm sort of stepping more, back from the people side vampires and uh, the sangs uh, because ah. most of the living vampire community has if they're not already any energy vampires uh, some of them have become as, as father Sebastian said he started out a blood drinker and now he's uh, he's energy uh, and it was mainly because of the health hazards of, of blood drinking that he decided it, it was a good idea to switch and some are both and some indulge in both, and so, some of the sayings only take small amounts, like they might prick a finger uh, or do a small razor cut every now and then. It doesn't have to be a daily thing. And others are uh, more serious blood fetishists. They they like to um, they like to do a lot of wounding and you know lick the blood or look at it and you know uh, rub it on their skins. You know they've got different ways of of enjoying the blood. I would say the sangs probably act out a, a little more than than the uh, psi vampires uh, because uh, the the blood is is part of uh, other syndromes of uh, of dress of behavior of uh, club environments or or social environments and uh, some of the psi vampires I know if you if you didn't know they were psi vampires uh, you wouldn't look at them. Uh, out of the ordinary, uh, but um, uh, sometimes the, the researchers they see the sang vampires just in their their social or club environments where they're they're you know doing the the practice of of the blood exchanges and it does seem pretty exotic. And we will continue with this fascinating interview on vampires with Rosemary Ellen Guiley in next week's show. Until then, this is Marcus Leader, and you have been listening to The Shaman's Brew on Jackalope 105 FM on the Jackalope Media Network.